Looking at Matthew chapter 6, we're going to be going from verse 9 to 15. Matthew 6, starting in verse 9, Jesus speaking. It says, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Let's pray that prayer we pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. I have one item of business I need to get out of the way. Happy anniversary, honey. That's all I got you. I'm sorry. (laughs) Don't say I never did nothing for you. Last week I mentioned G.K. Chesterton's quote that anything worth doing is worth doing poorly. Of course, that was his reinterpretation of an original quote that anything worth doing is worth doing well. I looked that quote up and found out, at least according to Google, that it was Philip Stanhope, the fourth Earl of Chesterfield, better known as Lord Chesterfield, for whom the beer is named. History is so much fun. Um, My brother always hated that beer. I'm with Pastor Stone. I like it. Well, I, I think both statements have merit when it comes to prayer. Prayer is worth doing well and poorly. Uh, What I mean by that is that on one hand, your prayers don't need to be perfect, and if you wait until you get it completely right, you'll never get started. But on the other hand, it's worth at least trying to do it well. And if we really love the Lord, we're going to want to get better at it. And who could be better to teach us to pray than Jesus himself? Because of all people who ever lived, you would think he knows how to talk to his father. Now, I realize our church is very into the liturgical calendar. We don't typically observe secular holidays, but today most of us, well, most people in the country really, are recognizing Father's Day, mostly, sadly, by sleeping in and not going to church. But um, I, I think it's providential that it's Father's Day anyway, because prayer, first and foremost, is supposed to be like a chat with Dad, in a good way, though. Um, there are some Christians that you'll meet that do the whole Daddy-God thing in prayer, Uh, That sounds silly, and a lot of Reformed Christians will openly mock it, but I think the daddy-god crowd are kind of, they may be more right than we like to admit, because we really do have free access to our Father. Now, I'll say this up front, that not all of us find it easy talking to our earthly fathers. Uh, We've probably had some weird and awkward conversations with our dads, I'm going to imagine, maybe some hard conversations. So how should we talk to our Heavenly Father? If God is really our Father, as Jesus is saying, and as we were talking about last week, how are we going to talk to him? Well, last week Jesus told us what not to do. He said, don't talk past your Father trying to be overheard by others. That's annoying to anybody. And don't babble to him or speak in formulas. In other words, don't talk to him like he's stupid or he's a robot. God's not impressed with those kinds of prayers. I was reading in Martin Lloyd-Jones this week how even pastors struggle with this, and it's inevitably so, because when we pray up here, 
We inevitably end up thinking of our congregation and choose our words for your benefit. Um, And meanwhile, most of us, not just pastors, we end up at a complete loss for words when we're praying in private and not in front of other people because we feel like the audience is missing. Something's wrong with this. Jesus says that's not the way prayer was meant to be. It's not supposed to be something awkward or unnatural or dishonest. Prayer is not about putting on a front for God. You're not supposed to put on your happy face to talk to him. Prayer is meant to be an open, honest, direct conversation with our Heavenly Father. And so, in today's passage, uh, Jesus is going to give us a model, an outline of what we should be doing in prayer. And we typically refer to this as the Lord's Prayer. Now, I'm going to point out a few things before we really get into the material here. One is that you're going to notice that this prayer is worded slightly differently than what we recite here on Sunday mornings after the pastoral prayer. That's because, contrary to popular belief, even Jesus didn't speak King James English. But it's also because what you have memorized as the Lord's Prayer was added to at some point in the manuscripts over the years, and now it includes that little doxology at the end the, the, thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that doxology, but it's not in the original text. Jesus probably didn't say those words originally. There's nothing wrong with saying them, but it was added later. So you're not going to find it here in the, in the text here, but don't let that throw you. Uh, also, I want you to notice and bear in mind that this prayer is not exhaustive, Right? Uh, Jesus doesn't cover every possible kind of prayer here. He doesn't include the imprecatory stuff or anything like that, right? He's only giving us sort of broad categories that are meant to serve as an outline and model for prayer. So it's not an exhaustive list of everything that you can say. And connected to that thought, I want you to bear in mind, again, that this prayer is a model and not a mantra. Uh, Dr. Boyce the longtime pastor of 10th Press, and he believed it was wrong to recite the Lord's Prayer at all, so they didn't at 10th in his time. Now, we recite it every week, and so do many other churches. I don't think that that's wrong or sinful, but I also don't think that Boyce was entirely wrong to at least be cautious about the question, because it, I think it would be a very strange application of this passage to say that Jesus just avo- you know, commanded us to avoid repetitious prayers, so let's recite the Lord's Prayer daily and at all times. I think to reduce the Lord's Prayer to a mantra is to abuse it. So again, it's meant to be a model, not a mantra. And if we must recite it, I think we should do so sparingly. It's fine to do it on Sunday morning, but mostly let's memorize it as an outline, uh, something to keep in our pocket so we can build our own non-formulaic prayers and speak more naturally to our Father. Now, here in Jesus' prayer, this model he gives us, he includes six specific uh, items statements, prayers, that can be boiled down into two broad categories. Martin Lloyd-Jones calls them adoration and petition. Uh, We would often call them praises and prayer requests, right? But, you know, roughly two broad categories. And that means that Jesus' model, if you look at it that way, is even easier to remember than the ACTS model. How many of you are familiar with the ACTS model? The A-C-T-S, right? Uh, What's it? Adoration confession, thanksgiving, and supplication, right? So it's like we shorten it, but we still use like these long words that most people don't know how to define, right? Or at least the last one, right? Uh, Some people prefer to do the confession first, so I've heard of people altering it to do, you know, cats instead, right? All I know is that Acts is a book of the Bible, whereas cats are undercover demons, so Acts, I think, is definitely the better way to go. Um, 
But either way, the axe model, cat's model, whatever, Jesus doesn't use that model exactly. I'm sorry, Joan, I see that look. <laughs> I'm just having fun up here. Um, but Jesus doesn't use the, the four-part distinction, so we're, we're going to stick with how he does it for now. And, and I kind of want to stick with Lloyd-Jones's focus, too, on these categories of prayer, these two ways of talking to him. He says adoration and petition. I'm going to go with glory and guts, because you're supposed to glory in him, and that includes the adoration, the praise, the thanksgiving stuff, but then you spill your guts to him in confession and in requests. All right? Glory, then guts. You can put that in your back pocket. So he starts with glorying in God. In other words, it sounds really like, a lot, in a sense, it starts as a sort of prayer, or, uh, prayer starts as a sort of love letter. Let's put it that way. He introduces the prayer model this way. First, he says, pray then like this, right? Now, he says that, like this, because once again, it's not a command to use these exact words. Uh, in Luke's account, he does say, when you pray, say this, but I think it makes much more sense in the entire context to think that he's saying, say these kinds of things would fit the picture better. But more importantly, look at how he says that we're to open our prayer. He says, our Father in heaven... I know we've been talking about this since last week, and I don't want to beat a dead horse, but if you take nothing else away from today, let it be this, that Jesus has invited you, Jesus has commanded you to speak to God first and foremost as your Father. Not as a king or the creator or a cosmic force like in Star Wars, not even as the supreme judge, but as your Father. That's his primary identity in prayer. Christian prayer is defined by the father-child relationship. That's where Jesus tells us to start, and we need to pay attention to that because it's going to condition everything else that we're about to say. The purpose of this greeting is not to remind God that he's our father, it's to remind us. You need to be reminded every time you pray that in Christ you are a child of God. In fact, I would say this is probably the only thing you probably should repeat verbatim because we forget it so easily. But Jesus wants us to adore God and pour out our heart to him, glory in God and make requests to God and do all of these things, but we, he wants us to do it to him as our father. It's a bold statement and should never be taken for granted. To address him any other way is almost to be cheating yourself, and it can potentially lead to believing a lie that he is distant and uninterested. Remember that he is your father. doesn't mean he's anything less than the creator and the judge, and that's not, you know, but that's not how you're to approach him first and foremost. As a Christian, you begin on the most intimate of terms. You call him father. But then Jesus gets into the details of how we're going to glory in him. He says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So if glorying in God looks like pouring out your heart in praise, every father wants to be loved and adored by his children. And Jesus gives us three ways to do that, three things worth loving about your Father in heaven. 
He gives these three statements of adoration, and he gives them in the form of imperatives. You could almost read it as, you know, it must be. These things must be. They're praise statements, not so much requests. And they revolve around your father's name and his kingdom and his will. May your name be holy. May your kingdom come. May your will be done. So Jesus says, first, we should love our and reverence our father's name. It's always a good impulse to uplift your father's name, because to run your father's name down would be stupid on several levels, not least of which is because you're about to be asking him for things, right? So you don't want to start by insulting him. But if you're talking to your father, it's doubly stupid because you're also insulting your family, which includes you. If your earthly father is dishonored, that reflects on you, and it feels like you've been hurt a little bit, right? So of course you want to honor his name. It's common sense to lift up the father's name. Or as Jesus says, to hallow it, to declare it holy, to set it apart. You are telling your father that his name is awesome. Now you can do this any number of ways, because God's name is kind of shorthand for his entire identity. It's everything he is. Anything you say to praise God for who he is is an act of hallowing his name. You can do it by praising him for his character and attributes. You can find an exhaustive list in the second chapter of the Westminster Confession if you want to read them all with the proof texts and everything like that. But perhaps the easiest summary is found in Romans 1. Paul says that his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So it can make sense to start by praising God for his handiwork, what you see around you. It's a form of thanksgiving for the powerful things that he's done. You can hallow his name by praising him for his creation and the world around you and the sunshine and the rain and the birds and the flowers. His world is a reflection of his character in its love and beauty and perfection. So you can praise him also for his work in history. You can praise him for what he's done this week and even today. He woke you up. He gave you breakfast, or at least coffee, I hope. He gave you friends and transportation, the clothes on your back. He got you to church and gave you a church to go to. You can praise him, most of all, for sending his son to die for you. These are all worthwhile things to mention. All thanksgiving hallows his name because all gifts have a giver. And it never gets old because saying thank you is essentially a way of saying I love you. My kids are too sarcastic to say straight up I love you, Dad, a lot of the time. The younger ones do sometimes, but sarcasm is a gift that comes with maturity. Grace will say occasionally, love you, pops, which is mostly a way of mocking me for being old. I play into it, too. I asked her the other day, what the kids are listening to these days? Are you still into Justin Bieber? Is it new in, new kids on the block? I said, you know, and she's like, Dad, Justin Bieber is like 30, and who are the new kids on the block? <laughs> Georgia was in stitches. Um, but that's okay. Even mockery coming from grace is actually a form of love. But my kids will much more often say, thanks, Dad. And I never get tired of hearing that because that's like a love language for me. I love being known as the guy who helped them solve stuff. Every time I help them with some project, even though I seldom do so with very much patience, uh, they always thank me. And to my ears, that sounds like, I love you. It's kind of like Wesley saying, as you wish in Princess Bride. So Thanksgiving is a natural way to express love.
Now, my wife observed this week that sometimes it's hard to be thankful. You can go through seasons in life where you're weighted down with sorrow, and it can be hard to pray when you can't think of anything to be thankful for. But I think in that case, it's maybe helpful to remember that Jesus doesn't actually include specifically a thanksgiving prayer in here. It's kind of strange, but true. And I think that we can take from that that even when our blessings don't seem obvious, we should still be thankful that God is God and that he is what he is. If you can't think of material things or things around you in your life that he's given you, you can at least be thankful that God is God and that he is, and that you're not. So the important thing is not the material blessings, but the God who is good and holy and just and perfect, even when life is hard. His name is his character, his personality, if you like. So when you lift up his name, you're loving him for who he is. Then Jesus tells us to glory in the kingdom. Now, we know that the kingdom, in a sense, has already come. There's no kingdom without a king. Jesus already inaugurated the kingdom. But you can pray that Jesus would come back soon to establish the kingdom forever. You can pray for the kingdom today by praying for the church. You can pray for Lehigh Valley Presbyterian Church. And you can pray for your elders and deacons. I hope some of you are doing that. You can pray for a presbytery. You can pray for general assembly. You can pray for other denominations that are spreading the gospel here in the Lehigh Valley. You can pray for the persecuted church. You can pray for numerical growth. You can pray for spiritual growth, that God would continue increasing our faith and eliminating falsehood and unifying us. Basically, when you say, let the kingdom come, you're praying that the gospel would go forward, that disciples would be made, that the kingdom would grow more and more, and that people would believe in Jesus and confess their sins and become card-carrying members of the kingdom. You're declaring to your father, that you love his church and that you glory in it and that you glory in his coming. You're saying that you love him for what he's doing with his people. And then Jesus says to glory in the father's will, that it would be done on earth as it already is in heaven. That's pretty straightforward, though it can be uncomfortable at times, can it? God's will is not always our will. It may not be pleasant or comfortable in the moment, and that's why Jesus was wrestling with this in Gethsemane on his way to the cross, right? Not, your, not my will, but yours. But we pray this in faith, believing that God's will is always best. And in effect, you're asking God to make your will more like his. You're declaring that you love his plan for you in the world. So Jesus says we're to glory, and, glory in our Father and to love him by loving his personality, his people, and his plan. Now, it sounds like we're making requests in these statements, and in a sense we are, but we're also acknowledging what he's already doing. These three statements are helpful because they focus on our Father and not on ourselves. Prayer begins by fixing our eyes on him and who he is and what he's doing, because we are easily distracted people. We were raised on sitcoms, and our attention span is about 30 minutes, right? So our minds are full of the worries of the week, our concerns about the future, how we're going to handle the problems of the week. And Jesus is basically saying that the first task in praying is to reorient our minds, to stop thinking of ourselves, fix our eyes on the glory of our Father. And that's why you'll notice that there's a common thread to these requests, that they're already happening. You're praying for a fait accompli. His name is exalted. The kingdom is already coming. His will is unavoidable. We know this. You don't say these things to magically make any of them happen. You're acknowledging that they are happening and will continue to do so and that you're happy about it and love him for it. 
You couldn't stop his name from being exalted if you tried, and you can't stop the kingdom from coming, and no one can resist his will. How could they? So they sound like requests, but they're already well underway. The point is not to convince God to do any of this stuff. You're essentially cheering him on. These are praises disguised as requests. But that doesn't mean it's a waste of time either, because God doesn't get tired of hearing praises. We were talking last week at Third Sunday uh, about the struggle and sort of the paradox of telling God things when he already knows everything. Uh, But we know that the purpose of prayer is not to fill God in. It's not a news broadcast. But uh, praising him and adoring him and glorying in him, that's different. That never gets old, just as it never gets old hearing thank you from my kids. Reverend Green has told the joke before to me of of the man who never tells his wife that he loves her after their wedding. Because he said, I told her once, I'll let her know if I change my mind. Right? Of course, that's not how real relationships work. Most wives don't get tired of hearing, I love you. Parents don't get tired of it. Kids don't get tired of it. And likewise, God never gets tired of hearing your praise for how awesome he is. So let your prayer start as a love letter to God. Glory in him. And the more you glory in his power and goodness, the more encouraged you will be. So as you remind yourself and remind him that he is awesome, that he's a good father, and that he's, you, re, you are reorienting your mind and getting yourself ready to make requests of him, to get to the part where you're spilling your guts. So your eyes are focused now, right? Now comes the, the guts after the glory. You're ready to present your requests. And they should be good ones, right? We're talking, again, about the one who is all-powerful, who made everything in the universe... His name is exalted, his kingdom is coming, his will is unstoppable. We've established that, right? And yet he's your dad, he loves you, and he's able to give you anything. You can completely spill your guts, and he'll do whatever, right? He he has that kind of power, and he has that kind of interest. So it's time to ask for big things, right? Verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. Okay, seems kind of modest, when you think about it, asking the creator of the universe for a tuna sandwich. You just declared that he's a holy king whose will is unstoppable. Jesus says, ask him for bread first. It almost reminds me of my little kids ordering the Kraft mac and cheese for $7 off of the kitty menu at a nice restaurant, right? (laughs) You can have anything, but you ask for the cheap crap we don't even keep at home, right? Sounds overly modest in a way, doesn't it? But Jesus' point is that nothing is too modest. Your heavenly Father does not despise little requests, nor is he too busy to worry about the little details. And let's be honest, the little stuff is what we struggle with a lot of the time, isn't it? It's an odd paradox of things, but somehow I trust him with world affairs But I don't trust him to get me through writing a sermon every week. Every week I panic, even though he comes through every week. Why? But Jesus says you can pray for a simple meal. You can pray for cheaper gas or a better used car. You can pray for your broken washing machine. I've been doing that very thing all week. To no avail so far, but... Maybe this is just one of these sanctification things, right? 
The point is, is that no request is too small. Never think that God is too big to bother with the little stuff. That's not how good fathers love their children. I'm not a great father, so I don't do this very well. I get impatient when my kids ask me about trivial things especially. One of my favorite responses is, I don't care. I don't care if you eat the last banana. Fine, have a piece of candy. Just get on with it and leave me alone. God's a better father than me. He doesn't scold his children for making minor, basic requests. In fact, he takes pleasure in that. He's teaching us to be thankful in these small things. I think it's funny that forgiveness only comes after all of this. Verse 12, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. I think most of us feel like this should have happened earlier. If you use the ACTS model, right, confession comes second. You use the CATS model, it comes first. Even in our worship service, we put confession very nearly at the beginning, right? That makes sense to us logically because we've all sinned this week, right? And we feel like we need to clear the air. And, and how often do you start private prayer with confession? I do it a lot. I feel like I have no right to ask him for anything unless I do that. And I don't think it's sinful, once again, but it's interesting that Jesus places confession nearly last in this order. And I think that that must be intentional. And I think he's trying to correct our perceived need to fix our relationship with God. I think it is a common misconception among Christians, maybe subconscious, that, yeah, God saved us, but keeping the peace with him is kind of up to us. At least a little bit. We, we take a slightly Pelagian view that peace with God is partly on our shoulders. If I screwed up this week, I have to fix it before we can talk about anything else. And what that does over time is it keeps us in hiding. If peace with God is up to me, even a little bit up to me, then I'm in trouble. And my temptation will be to avoid him. And I think that's why Satan loves this tactic. But how did Jesus start? He started with our father, right? He roots this prayer in the relationship of father and child. And a child does not become any less of a child just because they screwed up this week. The relationship is not contingent on your behavior, praise God. That's why we at least start the service with a hymn of entrance before the confession, because you don't come to the Father on the strength of your confession. You come to him on the basis of your relationship, which is something you can't lose. You ever seen when little kids argue and say, you're not my brother anymore? You've heard this? Why do we laugh? Because it's a stupid statement. You can't undo who your family is. And you cannot undo sonship if you are redeemed. Now, no relationship's going to thrive if you consistently hide your sin or try to ignore it. Confession is vital in prayer. You will be a sickly Christian if you neglect it for very long. And if you never do it, you may not be a Christian at all. But your status as God's child in Christ is not dependent on confessing your latest sin first. The relationship came first. 
This is why Jesus doesn't mention penance here either. Forgiveness is not conditional on that. There is no work that you can add to Jesus' finished work, not even a perfect confession. You won't even remember all the sins you've committed. And yet Jesus seems to assume forgiveness is inevitable for the child of God who asks for it. Now, he does say that we must forgive others. It's the only thing, it's the only clause at the end here, uh, for, for the, entire, the only clause in the entire prayer that gets an addendum here at the end, an added warning in verses 14 and 15. Uh, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither, neither will your Father forgive yours. But the force of the argument is that forgiven people will be forgiving. The best evidence that your confessions are true and honest is if you are able yourself to forgive others for the sins that they've committed against you. If you have ever truly seen and recognized the sin in yourself, and only the Holy Spirit can do that, you can't help but want to forgive others. It might be a struggle at times, and it might take time. But forgiveness is in the DNA of the true Christian. Forgiveness is a family trait. It's one of the ways we look like our Father. Jesus closes the prayer with one final request. He says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That seems like it barely needs saying. Uh, If you read in James 1, James says, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived conceived gives birth to sin and sin when it is fully grown brings forth death so according to james god never tempts us so why does this need saying well this is us asking god to keep us from dishonoring him you are admitting weakness and asking him to give you strength and a way of escape it's asking your father for help to look more like him It's the equivalent of your child telling you they can't do something and asking you to teach them and help them. This kind of prayer can feel very humiliating because you're admitting that not only have you failed before, but you're likely to fail again and that you need help and you're asking him because you can't do it alone. And your Heavenly Father listens to those kinds of prayers. He wants to help you be more like him. So that's it. That's the Lord's Prayer in a nutshell. Glory and guts. Glory in your Father, then spill your guts. That's my memory device. Glory and guts. That's why you pay me the big bucks. (laughs) Now, I'm going to say that I was tempted to split this prayer up into multiple sermons. Given the way I've treated some passages in this sermon so far, maybe some of you were expecting that. Maybe I should have, but I was afraid John would kill me. And more to the point, I was actually afraid that I would be in danger of making this more complicated than it's supposed to be. There's a lot of deep stuff in here for sure, and I I, I know we could talk about it for weeks, but what I ended up considering is that Jesus taught this lesson in about under a minute. And his goal, it seems to me, was not for us to overthink prayer Not that he wants us to take it lightly, but the important thing is to keep it simple and to keep it real. Because you're talking to your father, which is not a duty, but a privilege. 
There's a perennial conversation every year on Father's Day, and you see it in social media, and you'll see it in the culture at large, but, you know, Father's Day can be a painful day for many people because some people had not very good fathers. Uh, Some people never knew their fathers. Uh, Some of us have lost our dads. Some of us are dads but don't feel like we're particularly good at it. Um, The idea of talking to your father can be emotional for a whole lot of reasons. But if we really have a perfect father who loves us more than our earthly fathers, then we can talk to him. And it doesn't have to be sad or hard or awkward. It doesn't have to be beautiful either. One of the favorite things that I read this week was Martin Lloyd-Jones talking about this very thing. He said he questions whether prayers should ever be beautiful. Because he says prayer is ultimately a talk, a conversation, a communion with my father, and one does not address one whom one loves in this perfect, polished manner. There is surely something essentially spontaneous about true communion or prayer. So how do you talk to your Heavenly Father? If you've got this prayer memorized already, and I assume all of you do, then use it as a guideline. But basically, Jesus says, glory and guts. Tell him you love him, then tell him what's on your mind. Spill your heart, then spill your guts. And no matter the order, no matter the words you use, no matter the state of your faith, no matter how you're feeling today, you can pray knowing that he will be holy and his kingdom will come and his will will be done. He will provide. He will forgive. He will teach you to forgive and he will help you to be more like him. Why? Because he can't help being what he is and doing what he does. Because in Christ, he is your father and he is good. That's it. Amen. That's all I got. So let's talk to him now. Gracious God, our Father in heaven. What a privilege it is to talk to you, Lord. Lord, we are all guilty of coming to you infrequently and coming when we do in a very formal way of shielding some of our inmost thoughts from you. Lord, we pray awkwardly. Um... And we do pray with other people's ears in mind. Lord, it's so second nature. I I can't even stop myself from doing it now to an extent. But we thank you that you do hear us, Lord, and that all the things that Jesus gives us as examples to ask for, Lord, are all things that we can see clearly you're already at work and already doing. We thank you that we can talk to you about these things and that you want to hear what's on our heart and minds. And we thank you that these prayers don't have to be beautiful. Lord, help us to approach you with the simplicity of children coming to their father asking for help. Coming to their father to tell them that we love him. Teach us, Lord, we pray. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. 
The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Please stand and join me in singing the doxology. Praise God from whom. 